Howdy. This is uh, the Fight Site, uh, not an MMA podcast, but it's actually an interview. Um, it's basically a podcast because I'm joined by Zach Mikowski, who is a staff member for the Fight Site. So when it's two people on staff talking, yeah, it's a podcast, but I'll be interviewing him. Uh, but he's pretty used to it at this point. How you doing, Zach? Doing well. Yeah. Happy he's looming in the shadows. And I'm podcasting interviewed. Too bright. In yeah, podcast. we don't have to label it. We don't need labels. Keep it casual. Yeah, our lighting is opposite right now. I think that can just be chalked up to his windows behind him and my windows in front of me, and there's nothing I can do about it. Mm. I have the blinds that I have. Uh, anyway, we have a lot to talk about, but the purpose of this interview is going to try to be uh, to get as much technical, developmental, analytical discussion uh, out of Zach as possible with regard to his own career. Uh, the way he's developed as a fighter, the way he's evolved as a fighter, uh, an athlete throughout his career. Um, this is something I've tried to do many times with many different interviews, and it never works. <laughs> it's really, really hard to get uh, MMA fighters uh, to talk about this kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, Zach and I have talked about it before, and it's usually because they aren't thinking about it very often. But I know for a fact that Zach does, so he's going to have something to say. I don't know what, and I don't know if he knows what either, but we'll find out. Um, but yeah, let's uh, let's let's get into it. So, if people are unaware, uh, Zach's been fighting for a long time. Uh, he was world champion in Bellator at bantamweight, uh, and then he was in the UFC as a flyweight, where he got all the way up to a number one contender fight uh, against John Dodson, and then they robbed him and uh, didn't get the, the title shot. Uh, ended up moving on at some point and uh, fought in Russia uh, and is fighting uh, more so in the Middle East now with uh, Brave. Uh, so, how's your experience been? With Brave, how does that compare to other organizations you've been with? I mean, I, I like I like them a lot. Um, they seem to want to like really develop it as a, as a sport, not as so much like an entertainment kind of perspective. Like, um, but you know, there's there's issues like they still manage and promote fighters, which is a conflict of interest. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean overall they like during fight week and uh, like in and out of the cage they treat you extremely well um it, I, it's a little i think they put on like much better fights than um they then they like actually get like uh audience wise like i think the mm-hmm. The quality of fights they have deserves a bigger audience than what they're currently getting. I mean, it's only, I think it's only like four years old or something. They haven't been around too long. So, um, you know, I'm hoping they do good things. They support the, uh, like we talked about in our last podcast, the, uh, uh, IMAF amateur world championships. And so they're trying to, they're trying to do some good things, uh, for the sport in general. So, uh, so far so good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they've also been uh, utilizing the tournament structure in MMA, which I think is underutilized for sure. And part of it is that with the unified rules that are enforced in most places, uh, you can basically only have people fight almost always. You can only have them fight once a night, and then the turnaround time for fighters can be pretty difficult to arrange. So having like multiple bouts in a shorter period of time for a tournament is tough, but they do longer, longer form tournaments, kind of like what Bellator is doing. Uh, so you were in their flyweight tournament recently. Uh, your opponent was somebody that you beat in your first fight with Brave. I think it was. Uh, that was a close competitive fight. That guy's really strong and you know competent in most areas. Hard to deal with. But 
you definitely put a good game plan on him. He had the wrestling advantage, and he uh, ended up counter-striking him, taking him down. In this fight, it was essentially the same. Um, I actually thought you did better in the rematch than, than the first fight. Uh, the counter-striking was really good. At one point, you hit him with that beautiful uh, counter-knee to the body that folded him, uh, You know, almost put him away there, and uh, took him down a few times really uh, great fashion, rode him out, uh, had had two pretty clear rounds. And then a round where in the third round where you, you definitely thought you were ahead and you're kind of coasting a bit, took the back foot, let him work. And uh, they gave it to him, which didn't make sense, <laughs> especially considering uh, that you got the first fight and this was an even better performance. Uh, how are you feeling now about that fight and that performance? And, and what's your future looking like as far as com- competition? Yeah. Um... Uh, I honestly felt it was one of my better performances that I've had. I felt good about it in there. Mm-hmm. Rewatched it. You know, obviously I did kind of uh, take my foot off the gas in the last round, but to be honest, there was no reason I shouldn't have right. <laughs> given what actually happened. Um, yeah. I-, I think it was probably the worst decision. I've been a part of some decisions like the Dodson one where I thought I won. Mm-hmm. And the Sherbatov one, and then other ones that were close that went my way. That like the first fight with this guy, I thought actually, although I do think I gave myself a slight edge. Like there is like an argument for him to have won the fight. This one, I don't think that. I think this is probably the most egregious decision I've been a part of personally in my career. I just find no no criteria on which you could give him either one of the first two rounds. So mm-hmm. you know, I'm disappointed because it was the semifinals of a tournament. I knew. That was another reason I think I played it a little conservative because I knew I was like it was going to lead to a bigger fight for the title, so I was kind of like trying to make sure I hold on to that because I knew I had it and I still believe I had it. I mean, so I don't know. I'm obviously disappointed in the decision, but I'm pretty happy with my performance. Yeah. Um, I hope he goes on to win the tournament so I can, you know, maybe get a fight in the meantime and then beat him for a third time. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be good. So you're still holding out to seeing what, what happens with the tournament to see like what, what you want to do next. Yeah. They haven't contacted me about a fight yet, but I still have three or four fights left with them on my contract. So gotcha. that's probably where I'll be for the next several years. Mm-hmm. And uh, due to COVID and, and quarantines and, and all the changes in, in the world recently, uh, you haven't been training at a TriStar like you normally have been. You've been uh, close to home uh, in Pennsylvania. And you've also uh, started coaching. So uh, just talk to us about your current training situation and uh, just kind of reflect on these recent coaching experiences, how, you, how you've been doing with that. Yeah. Yeah. So the border has been closed for some Americans to get into Canada since September. I've been out since September, uh, last September. Um, so, you know, whenever I'm in town here in Pennsylvania, visiting family and stuff, I train at the uh, Finishers MMA and 10th Planet. Bethlehem, which is same school. And I've been friends with the one co-owner, Zach Maslany, since high school. We were good friends in high school. We used to hang out. So, um, you know, they kind of had uh, obviously a good jiu-jitsu program and they had a kickboxing program, but like the one lane they were missing was like people, someone to put it together and incorporate wrestling and striking to takedowns and kind of meld the arts together. And I was like, that's like exactly where yeah. I should fit in. So I was like, I'm stuck here and uh, I kind of proposed like starting to develop an MMA program with them and they were on board right away. So, you know, still pretty young. I think I've only been running this program for maybe like two months now. 
Um, but it's going pretty well. I'm enjoying teaching a lot. Um, you know, have some fighters traveling from, from around the area to come train with me. So that's great. And yeah, just slowly building the team and, uh, we'll have some, some guys and girls coming out with fights soon. So I'm, I'm, ha I'm happy teaching. I, I am enjoying it a lot. Mm -hmm. That's in Bethlehem. Yes. Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. All right, so if you're in the Northeast Pennsylvania, anywhere near there, you should definitely drop by and visit okay. Zach and go train and pick his brain. Cause he's got, got a lot of knowledge to offer. And that's kind of uh, what this is going to be about is some of the knowledge he has to offer. We're going to try not to get too super detailed of like, actual technique because that's a whole different discussion you can go on all day and it's actually not that helpful sometimes <laughs> to just talk about those things but we're going to talk more about development um ideas and you know kind of self-awareness um it with the case study of zach's career essentially and uh, we'll see how specific we end up getting but i i plan on learning something uh, no matter what and i've always wanted to uh know know stuff like this and with zach the best part is uh we can do it with two sports because uh, he's had a whole a whole lifetime of wrestling uh, before the MMA career, so I'm I'm excited. Uh, so let's let's get into it. Uh, I believe you you said you started wrestling when you were a little kid, uh, which is actually very common with people who ended up at the Division One level. So I'm sure you know when when you first start wrestling uh, when you're a child, uh, you're not self aware of your development. Uh, you're learning what what's being taught, and, and you're going where you think would be good to go and you're just doing kind of what your coaches tell you and what your parents want if they're involved. Um, but you know, at, at the point where there started to be a more clear, you know, style for you or influences, you know, what, what kind of ideas or what, who, who specifically like coaches or uh, teammates or mentors uh, influenced you to, to start to develop a certain style and skill set. Yeah. I mean, it, it was such a different time too. Like um, I really didn't get to see like like uh many much wrestling outside of like when i was actually physically at events like mm -hmm. there wasn't access to like like flow wrestling or or any of these events where you can or like, even like youtube didn't exist so we, like you can't like find wrestling matches and footage of like people to follow so like really like the whole my whole youth career obviously i, I was i was young so i wasn't really thinking about you know how am I going to develop as a wrestler? You know, yeah. you're showing up to practice, learning the techniques, essentially your style is developing through what you learn from your coaches and what is working for you in the room, basically through trial and error. So it's a somewhat random kind of development. Um, I, if I would steal techniques like from people outside of my coaches, it was from other local wrestlers who were succeeding that I would be able to, you know, see them in person at tournaments or dual meets or whatever, you know? So there was like, I mean, the rest of, I'm from Lehigh Valley, which is one of the best, if not the best, like, uh, area in the country for high school and youth wrestling. Amazing area. So we had a lot of like really good people that went really far. So I would get to see some like very talented people. And I remember like people like, I don't know if this name will ring a bell, but uh, Jeff Eckloff, who was multiple time PA state champ, I believe two or three, and then went on to wrestle for Oklahoma. Hmm. I'm not sure if you are all American or not. You know, the, the one thing I did notice, this is a little sidebar, is that a lot of the guys who got pushed really hard early and were like super successful kind of 
burnt out a little bit more in college when they were on their own. You know, their parents push them really hard. Yeah. When they're under the roof. I, I've seen that like at Drexel with a lot some some of the best recruits we had while I was there kind of just were not not that they lost their skill. They were just less interested in wrestling because it, it had been pushed on them so hard. And yeah. I was kind of I was kind of the opposite. Like I didn't take it very seriously. It was something I liked, but I wasn't like my parents didn't push me like that, you know. You know, I went to like a talent wrestling club, which was like this amazing club where all the, these amazing wrestlers from the area would come. This is off season. But like when I was in high school, I would like, I was supposed to go and I would just like skip and go hang out with my friends and do stuff like that. And so I really didn't take wrestling very seriously until maybe very late in high school. And then college is when I was like, oh, I actually like really want to try to be good. You know, mm-hmm. not just like except like wherever I was is where I was is kind of how I had it. So like my influences were local guys initially, you know? So it was really, it was really hard because we didn't have, I feel like it's very different now. Like there's so much access to like the best people wrestling all the time. Like you you can get these, the information is allowing people to develop way quicker. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a huge advantage now. Like that's what I think that's why you see like in jujitsu, like some of these, like all (laughs) sports being dominated by like 17 year olds and 20 year olds and stuff. It's kind of, it's kind of crazy. For sure. Yeah. I think the internet is like, I think when you, in, in hindsight, when people start discussing like eras of sports, the era where developing athletes as kids start to be able to have access to all this footage for free is definitely going to be have to be sectioned off because it's just night and day. It's not even fair. Yeah. Um, Yeah, Like I was like, if I wanted to learn a technique or something, I'm learning from like a a magazine where there's like still, uh-huh. picture frames of the move or like a book where it's the same thing. So it's like obviously way harder to, to like gain a deep insight from these little still framed images. You know, it's people these days have no idea how much mm-hmm. different it was. It's pretty funny. For sure. So I'm sure it is naturally there were moves or, or a style that you gravitated towards just based on what you were good at. Um, so kind of where were you at? What, what was the, the overall image of, of your style and your approach at the end of high school? And then what, what changed through college? What were some of the big developments and, and why? Um, so in college is when I like started to like my first three weeks of college, basically kind of like I, I, I didn't know people trained this hard, basically. <laughs> And I don't think Drexel is like an especially like hard, more hardworking than other schools, but like I couldn't walk for the first three weeks of, of college because we were practicing like incredibly hard. I would get enough adrenaline to like make it through practice, but I was like, I couldn't believe people trained like this. I, I didn't know about it before. You know, I was like, I would lift and do my, do wrestle hard in practice and we do our sprints after practice and stuff, but that was it. Like I didn't, do much outside of practice besides lifting or studying wrestling. And now I'm thrown into like where, so I wasn't especially good in high school either. Like I was, I'm from a very tough area, Mm -hmm. but I was like, you know, relatively mediocre. I was above average, but not like I'd never even qualified for States in PA. So, uh, so I wasn't like anything special and just people knew that I was decent. So I got a teammate invited told the coach and they invited me to walk on and try out basically. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of really eye opening from just a like 
how much harder these people are working than I was working previously. And, uh, and then I'm also now working with our assistant coach was Joe Melchiori, who was a three-time New Jersey state champion, over a hundred pins in high school, four-time division one, all American, two years under Gable at Iowa world team member. Like, like I, I had never seen someone at that level before. And like his technique just looked way different. So, but he had a unique style too. So I couldn't take everything, but like he shaped a lot of how I think about wrestling now. And then, um, so he had competed against John Smith. He, he, one of his NCAA finals, uh, losses was to John Smith. So he was, he, and then he was a fan of John Smith. So he would show a lot of stuff that John used to do. And then I started, uh, looking into John Smith on my own and like buying his VHSs and low sing, how low can you go? This low single mm -hmm. stuff. And then Kale Sanderson was like, I think he, my freshman year is when he won his fourth NCAA title. So I was like, started following him and watching all his matches. So I like started to develop low single and ankle pick game. That was pretty good. Even though my body type wasn't especially suited for ankle picks, but I was very good with them. And, uh, I kind of just, I like the way they wrestled. So I gravitated to like much more of a takedown artist than like a mat rider. You know, I was much better at takedowns than, um, than like riding or, or even like escaping or reversing from bottom. So, um, I'd say most of it was at least through Joe Melchiori. And then he introduced me to John Smith. And then I saw Kale Sanderson also. And those are the guys that like really heavily influenced my wrestling at that time. Mm-hmm. And did you, that, that was reinforced by your results in competition. You know, it was working better than things you'd done before. So you said, I'm going to keep doing this. Yeah. So that's like, so like when I got to college, I'm now in a division one program and I had never even made it to the state tournament. So I'm like in the room with, if there's other PA guys in the room, they're like a state champ or two times state yeah. champ. And then if the guys from out of state are like three time Connecticut state champs and like who, who I would do really well with. Mm -hmm. So it was like, it was interesting, but like, so I would basically like the bottom of the barrel when I got there. So, you know, just to be able to, to like take one of these guys down once in a while, my first year was like, okay, I'm starting to do some stuff. Right. So, and then, then, you know, after my, my first year, I really committed to wrestling and I got so much better. I was like, you know, better than most of the guys around my weight in the room. You know, we had all American Rob Redman, uh, uh, he was ahead of me at 125 when I got there. And then later in my career, we got Steve Midich, who I don't think all American, but he was close. He was like a, a you know, top 15, not top 20, maybe uh 125 pounder. So um, I got really, and I was doing really well with them consistently in the room after that first year, that first year I got murdered every day, yeah. every year, like <laughs> murdered. Uh, but yeah, so, and, and those were the techniques. So as I started learning more from Mel Curie and then started studying, I just kind of like, it, it wasn't like a, I didn't think about it. I, I just saw Mel Curie showed what he did. And then what he told me, like some of this stuff is from John Smith. So then I would look into John Smith and then Kale Sanderson was doing low ankle attacks. And I just found it like a kind of a less, if you, if you like if i miss an ankle pick i'm not really in a vulnerable spot to be scored on anymore yeah. i'm kind of like it's uh less of a committed attack but and the but the finishes are e are easy too because uh you know you're catching them at the at the foot 
So I just kind of gravitated to that style and I was having success in the room and that's kind of how it worked. But it wasn't like I thought out ahead of time, like, what do I want my style to be? It was just kind of yeah. how it unfolded, which I think is really how basically not a hundred percent, but extremely high percentage of people and how they develop. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds very familiar to what MMA training is like for yep. most fighters because you have so much yep. to learn right away. So you're just focused on learning new stuff because you have to catch up to where everyone's at. So it's we'll, like, we'll it's get, it, we'll get into it. I'm sure. But I think it's even worse. than MMA. So, Oh yeah. Well, I'm, yeah. I'm ready to get into it. So let's, let's shift college is over. Uh, you start training MMA. You can definitely tell me what that looks like. You know, are you at a gym? You know, is where you just messed around at first, but uh, by the time that you're, you feel like you officially had started training to be an MMA fighter, uh, what was that looking like for you? You know, what were you doing that was working? You know, what kind of stuff were you learning? Why were you learning it? Or is it more, more of just hear the people telling you what to do when you're picking it up and trying to apply it? It was definitely a lot of that, but uh, so like, so I was, I always like, even in high school, I was like, renting like the vhs's of the ufc and stuff and mm-hmm. uh like my dorm in freshman year i would like go buy these uh the pride the early pride vhs's and you know like a bunch of people from my floor in my dorm would watch which watch these with me and nice. I, was, like, I was just always interested in in um i don't even know if it was called mixed martial arts yet it used to be nhb right but i was like very interested in this and um Sakuraba was the first probably guy that like stole my heart for the sport. Um, so like, and there was a guy on Drexel's wrestling team, um, a heavyweight. So he, I don't even think he wrestled in high school, but we didn't have, we only had one heavyweight and there was no one else on the team for him to wrestle. And this guy wanted to fight and, but, and they just let him practice with the guy cause the guy needed a big body. And so like I became friends with him. This guy's name is Mike Parzik. A uh, maybe the guy who got me officially in MMA. Um, so he was training at uh, this school called Body Arts Gym in Philadelphia, and out of that, it was a Muay Thai gym. And out of that gym, there was a NHB team called Philadelphia Fight Factory. Mm-hmm. So after wrestling season ended my freshman year, he took me to the gym, and I, you know, we were just basically doing no gi grappling, like. He's not a, he was a, he started in Sambo and then no, no like official jujitsu rank or lineage or anything like that. So we were just, he's essentially teaching himself grappling for the most part. And he was fighting in fights, shoot fights with open hands and, you know, bare knuckle, closed fist and like what, no rules, whatever. They were all, they were doing that all when I just kind of came with, came with that heavyweight there. So I did it for like, you know, once or twice a week, I was learning some submissions I was trying to jump on Kimuras everywhere because I was watching yeah. soccer. Baba, so I was just like, <laughs> and I'm like taking people down, but right into triangles over and over and over. I can't believe, I, I mean, I got triangles so many times. It was ridiculous. So, um, yeah. So I just started kind of training in the, in the off season. I instead, like we would do freestyle in the room, but I wasn't like committed to like doing freestyle that much. I would mm-hmm. mostly in the off season, go train at this, this uh, martial arts gym where fight factory was out of. And, um, and I would start doing like jujitsu tournaments, no gi tournaments and stuff like that. So all through college, I was in the off season. I was, you know, working on, I wasn't really doing any striking, but we were doing, 
grappling, even sometimes grappling with ground and pound, but no striking on my feet. So I was doing like no gi jiu-jitsu basically. And uh, I mean, I was, I was instantly like one of the better guys, I think just because of my wrestling. Yeah. Uh, and I could control people and stuff. So it was really good. And like, I think the second summer I was there after wrestling season, Eddie Alvarez showed up. And he was a, I knew him from high, wrestling in high school, my high school wrestling, his high school. Mm-hmm. And uh, he showed up and would come train and do whatever I want with him. A- anything, crush, crush him. Uh, and then I would go back to wrestle for six months and he was done wrestling. He didn't, he didn't go to college. He's like working construction and now committed to training. I come back the next off season and, you know, he's way better, but I'm still occasionally catching up. <laughs> I go away one more season. I come back. He's already, I think now he's three and oh as a fighter. And now I can't do anything to him. Like he's crushing me at everything. So like I saw him, like I was gone for six months at a time, but I would come back and see him like taking leaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's kind of like that. And uh, yeah, so I mean, by the time I graduated and transitioned to MMA, I had already had, you know, a few months, a year of no gi training for, for, four or five years, four, four years. Um, and then I took my first pro MMA fight six months after I graduated from college. And it wasn't like a plan. I wasn't like, I'm, I'm going to, there was no smaller weight classes. Like, so I was never thinking like, this is going to be a career. It was just yeah. like, you know, I knew, I knew early on, I was never going to be like an Olympic caliber wrestler. So if I still wanted to compete, it would have to be probably a, a different Avenue. And I was always interested in martial arts. Like I said, I used to rent those, I used to read Bruce Lee books in high school and stuff. And, um, so I, you know, started training there, like training, like doing jiu-jitsu tournaments, decided I wanted to take a fight and then took a fight. And then just slowly as I had success kind of progressed to the point where I was like, okay, I can quit one of my two jobs and like train more and then tra- eventually train full time. Mm-hmm. So that's how you ended up as an MMA fighter, but in all the while you're just kind of picking up skills naturally, just showing up, learning whatever they're teaching. So was yeah. there a, a point where you're like, all right, I need to be at the certain place and your training became more focused and like intentional, or was it just like you upgraded your training situation? You just had access to more information. It was more of the same, but with more people, more information. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't like, I, I, I don't think I, until, you know, semi-recently i didn't take a big picture account of like my development or how to how to kind of combine all my skills into like a coherent system that i should apply you know Mm -hmm. it was just kind of like and and i think i really think this is the way for most fighters even now it's just like okay, like I'm learning boxing. So I'm, I'm learning how to punch my mechanics and how to throw combinations and I'm learning Muay Thai. I'm learning how to kick and clinch and do some stuff there. And I'm learning whatever rest. I, I was already, you know, an accomplished wrestler and I'm learning jujitsu and there, these are the things that I do in jujitsu. So it's just like, as you get into these situations in an MMA fight you just are responding with the ways you deal with it in those individual ones mm-hmm. and it was never like you like now now all my training is done with the 
with MMA context in mind. And I, I mean, I started doing this years ago, but, but for a long time, especially early, it was just like kickboxing class. And this is, this is the, so anytime that you encounter that situation, even when it was an MMA context, it's like, this is my response that has been ingrained in me, you know? So I don't know. The development wasn't connected in a, in a intelligent way, for sure. I, I was well-rounded. I was getting like a skills in every area, but I wasn't really connecting my game in any kind of coherent way for a while. Now, mm-hmm. this, was a, this was a long time ago. MMA was still really new. Right. So I was still ahead of most people, I think. I, I had enough... I had enough grappling and wrestling background and I was a good enough athlete to be able to like move in and out of range and throw some strikes, <laughs> but I wasn't like a good striker or anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, at what point did you end up going to TriStar for the first time? Mm, it was after I was Bellator champ, maybe 2012, I think. So you won a world title, just uh, training skills individually. I mean, it's not like I didn't know I was fighting MMA. We right, would do, <laughs> we would do MMA sparring, and I would have to, I would have to figure out. I think, like, I figured out quickly that, uh, and no one, no one really told me this stuff. It was like, oh, if I want to be successful at wrestling in mixed martial arts, like, there, there's some, there's some gaps I have to fill. It's like, how do I close the distance effectively to get a hold of them? Because all the setups are essentially totally different. Like you're, yeah. you're not like pulling on the head and, and making them step and faking a one leg and setting them up with a shot at the other leg. Like none of that exists. I have to find a way to manipulate their position without really touching them for the most part until like, unless I, or get to a clinch where I can, then I can do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I figured that out fairly early. I don't really know how I just knew <laughs> it just made, it just made sense to me. I didn't, I don't even know if I knew that like in my own head that I was, I, I saw I was taking people down better, like in a more efficient way than most people I was watching fight, you know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I think but it, was, uh, kind of, it yeah. was kind of just like trial and error, basically. Mm-hmm. When it comes to wrestling for MMA, what I see, like when I look at a fighter's career, like from beginning to present or end, um, the first thing they almost always figure out is, is reactive shots are, are there like in wrestling you almost never have someone coming at you with their hands up going for your head, you know, yeah. hips, hips forward. Like, it's like, wow, that is, that is free. That is a free takedown. So I feel like instinctually that's pretty easy to figure out. Um, d- did you, you know, a lot of the, I mean, you're someone who has a lot of interesting setups or for your shot entries, not just reactive shots, uh, you know, ways to get people into those vulnerable types of situations. Um, did it build off of that understanding? Did you start making stuff up and, or, or those things that were taught, like the skip up, uh, low kick into the, uh, into the single, the snatch single, for example, like you hit on Joe B. Is that something you, you figured out or is that something that was taught? Um, yeah, that's my question. <laughs> I think it slowly developed on my own through trial and error. And then once I made that like realization, like, oh, I have to find new ways to set up how I'm going to get a hold of them. I started, I mean, I was always watching MMA and I was always a fan and I started watching a lot more. Trained with Frank Yeager a couple of times. So I'd watch him a lot. Yeah. George was always my favorite. It's the reason I initially wanted to just visit TriStar just for the experience to train where, in my opinion, the best fighter ever trained. So, mm-hmm. but, but he was, and the fact that he wasn't 
didn't have a wrestling background and was taking down guys like who I watched wrestle in college, Josh Koscheck, right. who was a four-time All-American national champion, and George can take him down more than Josh can take him down by a fair bit. Is It just kind of validated what I was already kind of uh, seeing, you know? I don't mm-hmm. know. So it was, it was, it was through trial and error, my own thing, like that, the skip up low kick specifically, I think was my own, my own, uh, I put it together on my own without seeing it from someone else. It was just cause I would use this kick and people would always try to step in and hit me when I threw the kick. So, and I know when they step in and try to swing and co- are committed, that is when they're most vulnerable to be taken down. And I think my style kind of, um, I mean, there's other, there's other reasons I think I developed the style I did, but mainly I was like pretty good athlete and fast. So I could like, even though I was smaller than most of the people, I could like get in and out and like touch you and be out of range before you could, so you could hit me back. So mm-hmm. people would like start chasing me and reaching to catch me. And that made them like very exposed for easy takedowns. And that was like most of my game probably up until through Bellator was like pick and poke, get you to chase me and take you down when you overextend. And then, mm-hmm. you know, try to control you ground and pound past your guard and submit you if I can. But it was, that was like basically what I was doing, trying to poke at you. And when you overextend, take you down. And if you just let me pick and poke at you, I'll just move in and out. You're going to have to do something eventually, you know? It's a good idea. It definitely works. And that that's it builds off the very first thing you probably noticed as a wrestler is like, oh, when people move towards me, I can take them down much easier. So make a move towards me and you utilize your natural or not even natural, just existing uh, attributes and, and skills to do it. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, um, I think like when I when yeah. I started sparring, I noticed like like I would like step in and try to throw like a like make it look like a really hard jab is coming and then try to just double. And mm-hmm. people would always be stepping back and I right. would end up like really extended, like barely get their leg or be at their feet. And I would get sprawled out over and over. And I think I just realized like, this isn't exactly working. Like I have to figure out something else. You know? mm-hmm. and, and you see that a lot. People yeah. just trying to like still do. throw a punch to get their hands up and assuming their feet are going to stay in that same spot. And they're mm-hmm. like, most of the time, if you c- throw a committed attack at someone, they're going to at least like start to move back. Cause they don't, they're not sure what's coming either. Mm-hmm. I have to entice them to come forward or at least, to like plant and try to counter me. Mm-hmm. When it comes to like pure, like ideal optimization, you know, something that I believe is like, if you're going to move forward on your setups uh, to strike, unless you know for a fact that this person has these reactions and, and they're going to be there and they're going to plant and try to hit me. Uh, I feel like moving forward, your goal as a striker, if you're, if you're trying to wrestle should be to put them on the cage. If, if you like to wrestle on the cage and if you don't like to wrestle on the cage, you should be trying to figure out when they're going to, uh, counter or when they're going to lead to hit your reactive shots. Cause like uh, Sarah Longo is a camp that teaches uh, like stepping through your rear hand into a single. And I've seen a bunch of times uh, Sarah Longo guys like Al Joe and, and Marab, uh, even like Al uh, stepping through their right hands and their opponent moves backwards and they shoot their single and they're on their knees and their head is down and they're, they're, they're extended on their single. And then, you know, we don't, we haven't even touched this yet. We kind of talked about it just, you know, winning by competency, right. Just being better in places than other people. Uh, yeah. Not a lot of MMA fighters know how to defend singles. Well, 
So you can be like on your knees, like extended on a single and still come up and finish uh, a lot of the time. I mean, could be kind of made a career on that for a while um, without really good setups in space, but yeah, just, you know, it's talking about like an ideal world, imagining opponents that are going to be able to punish that. Like uh, it's not, it's not really optimal, but uh, yeah, it's like, are, are people thinking about that? Are Jim's thinking about that? Are they just like, here's something that can get someone to respond. And when they respond, that's a good time to shoot. Um, instead of thinking about what's the best way to finish least path of least resistance. And I also, based on that, wanted to kind of get your thoughts because you've said it before. Uh, you said you don't really like wrestling on the cage. Um, just tell me your thoughts about that as a skill set overall and then what, why you don't really take to it. Okay. Before I go to that. Yeah. So, um, I, I, so like I was like, I, like we talked about when I was wrestling, I was like a low single ankle pick guy for the most part. Yeah. So it was really hard to make that work in MMA. And I did take my first opponent in MMA down with a low single, Yeah. <laughs> but it, it would, I, I, I did it once, but I wouldn't do it again in the same fight because I knew like the level change is just too drastic. It's like mm -hmm. uh, more of a telegraph thing, but I, I, I did it once to surprise him, got him down. But like, so like this was developing as I was fighting, not like I didn't like figure all this out before I ever took a fight. It was like through my first I don't know, five or six fights, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and another thing about like stepping through with with like uh the sarah longo guys you're saying like stepping through to shoot um you mean like bringing like shifting essentially to yeah. a shot yeah so I, I think i think another thing is like i was very lucky in that i was a right leg lead lead in wrestling my whole mm -hmm. career and i'm also like actually left-handed so when when people told nice. me to box like i don't know i'm not even thinking about mma context yet people are like I show up to a boxing lesson, uh, boxing lesson, or and they're like, "What are you left-handed, right-handed?" Okay, so you stand right leg lead, and your left hand is your power hand, and, your jab, and, your <laughs> and it just happened to work out that I was a I was a right leg lead in wrestling, but also left-handed, so it didn't have to switch. And I think that might be a, a reason why people step through to shoot a lot. Like Johnny Hendricks had to do this. He's southpaw, is but he was a left leg lead in wrestling, you know. Mm -hmm. So he has to like. And he was never great at taking people down in MMA. No, you know, so because I think he had to step through a lot because it's just hard to get used to leading with the other leg if you if you haven't done it your whole life. You know, I have that problem. Um, <laughs> so I did have a lucky. I, and Eddie, Eddie Alvarez had that problem because he was a right leg lead, but he's also orthodox. So he, uh, so he had to shift a lot. And he eventually, I think, he just learned how to shoot with a left leg lead for the most part. But I it took a while. Mm -hmm. So I think that was a huge advantage I had too. Um, as far as like wrestling on the cage. So I feel like there's different, I didn't like initially just be like, no, this is bad. <laughs> I don't like it. I just figured out. It just seemed, it just like the more I did, it was seemed like very difficult. I felt like I always had to use a lot of energy to hold people there and to get them down. And then it was really hard to advance to something like a dominant position or a place that I could do damage from. And they would always kind of just get back up or I'd be like stuck holding their legs and I can't advance. Cause as soon as I move off their legs, they're, they're getting back up. And so I always felt it was kind of a waste of energy. And I've since been trying to like, uh, find ways around it and figure out exactly how I do like to work on the cage. I'm not uh -huh. against it. Like you were going to have to sometimes, but I'm also not the same kind. Like, so there's like different kinds of 
people that have different attributes like Khabib, Askren, guys, Jake Shields are like guys like they want to get a hold of you and never let you go. And they're okay with like, like chaining different attack, different wrestling attacks together and then getting you down. You get up, Matt returning you and just like riding you out. Gillespie, the whole, the whole round. Whereas like, I feel like, like I would get really fatigued trying to do that. Even when I wrestled, I was a takedown guy. I would, I, I would ride a little bit and try to like get little tilts and stuff. But as soon as you're like really fighting to get out, I'll just cut you and take you down again for the mm -hmm. most part. And, you know, I think not everyone's built to be the grindy type of wrestler. Like Chad Mendes is much more like super clean, explosive takedown. Yeah. And he's not going to like try to ride you out. As you, like he's going to, he's going to release you and like try to land some shots as you're escaping. Um, so I always, I, I mean, I didn't, I didn't specifically think of Chad Mendes that I just knew that I felt like I was using too much energy for not much, not much gain when I was mm -hmm. wrestling against the cage. Um, so I just, that's, that's kind of, it was just harder to keep people down. I felt like if I take you down an open space, I have a good chance to keep you there or at least make you like expose your back with hooks when you get up or in the cage, like you don't, you can, you don't have to do that. Of course, there's exceptions. Like people are different than me, and have obviously different skill sets. Like could be mm -hmm. obviously unbelievable at it. I wish I could do that stuff, but yeah. <laughs> but you know, not everyone's the same and doesn't have the same physical attributes. And your style is going to be probably related to your mm -hmm. physical attributes. It should be, in my opinion. You know, yeah. so that was kind of how I approached it. I see. Like George was my favorite fighter, and I modeled my takedown game off of a lot of like how he did it, even though I was already kind of, I think I was already kind of getting on that path anyway. Yeah. Uh, but like he rarely would take people down against the cage a little bit here and there, like get a single, but he would like clinch you and like strike with you a little bit. And then like maybe attack a single and go back to the clinch, but he wasn't like nonstop pushing people to the cage and like Matt returning them all over the place, you know, clean, easy takedowns. That's what I'm mm -hmm. talking about. <laughs> I definitely, uh, I like that. I like that approach. Yeah. But there's like, like I said, there's not like one isn't better than the other. It depends on who you're fighting, their skills, how it matches up with yours and your physical attributes. Mm -hmm. And you you know, so I don't know. It's different for everyone. Yeah. And honestly, I just, you know, reflecting on what you've said so far for, for everything is just, you know, you're an observant person, you know, yourself pretty well. You're a smart guy. Um, uh, um, this is a huge reach. Uh, you studied science <laughs> in college, so you know you have you have that mindset, honestly, of like trial and error and making adjustments based off results. And you know, you just you did things that that made sense um, for you, and you made changes based on your results and and how things were going. And honestly, that might be a lot more than a lot of people. Uh, you know, a lot more insight than people have, and you know, a lot more awareness than people have. So, it just sounds like your your development going in a in a good direction. Uh, wasn't really based off coaches saying like, "Hey, Zach, you got to think big picture. Like, how's this all working together? How is this optimized?" It's just you figuring it out. Um, but I also, know, still, I also, oh, you go ahead. I also, I also sought out coaches who I thought would fit my style well. Like, mm -hmm. so like uh, I started watching uh, the first time I really watched ADCC was 2003. Mm -hmm. That was Marcelo Garcia's breakout year. 
and I, I was when I was introduced to him and I was blown away by him. I liked how he was approaching things from the bottom, which is like butterfly guard arm drags to double legs and, and like take the arm drag to the back and stuff. I was like, this stuff that's already uh, that I already know how to do. And he's just doing it for in a slightly different context. Mm-hmm. And he was short and stocky and built like me too. And then I also liked Leo Vieira a lot. And his passing was like, I thought his passing was unbelievable. He passed Eddie Bravo's guard like 15 times in that match or something. <laughs> right after Eddie subbed Euler in like the biggest, the biggest match ever, he got crushed by Leo Vieira. And uh, so Leo and Marcelo were like my initial jiu-jitsu influences. And then I went, as soon as I knew Marcelo had a school in New York, I was like, he's a guy I want to work with. And then through watching George and like some of his training and stuff, I uh, was introduced to Phil Nurse and Phil Nurse was in New York too. And like, he didn't have like a traditional, super traditional Muay Thai style or, you know, like, like he moves a lot. He does a lot of like, uh, kind of like big fakes and like misdirection. And I, I feel like it was all, he, he moves more than like the average Muay Thai guy. I felt like that was a good, good fit for, for me too. So I, you know, started training with those guys. So I tried to also to, it wasn't just like knowing what my skills were and how to try to think about it smart ways to, to uh, train, but it was also seeking out coaches who I thought uh, would aid in that development, not just kind of like any random coach or just a coach because they had a name. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously they, they did have names, but it, that wasn't the only reason I saw something specific that I thought would be helpful for me, you know? Yeah, for sure. Uh, this might be the answer to that question. Uh, but what, what were some of the most important changes that you made throughout your career that helped you become the best version of yourself as a fighter and an athlete? And do you think it was just those, those, you know, going out to find new coaches, you know, you know pick up new techniques, stuff like that, or. Um, so this is probably a surprising, I don't know if it's surprising, but this had a, a huge influence on my game. I don't know if it was entirely good. It was certainly good at least in some respects. But um, so like, as I, as my striking was developing, I was kind of like, and if my early fights, like I'm just like <laughs> jumping, flying knees and throwing like jab <laughs> overhands and like the traditional, tr- tr- like my second fight, it's like jab overhand, try to shoot. Oh, he sprawled. I got a body lock and then I got him out, taken down out of a body lock or whatever. And um, this is maybe two, a little over two years since I had my first fight, um, you know, sparring in the gym and I'm sparring. We had one of the best uh, females at the time. Uh, I think she was ranked number one in the world at 125. I mean, this is before women's MMA was big or anything, but Tara LaRosa was a girl who trained with us and she was, you know, a little bigger than me, but around my weight and we would train together a lot. She was very good at jujitsu at the time. I think she was a purple belt under hoist. Like I didn't even have a belt, you know, we were just doing no gi under a sambo guy. So, um, and we were sparring and I'm, I think I was like really into Roy Jones at the time. So I was watching (laughs) Roy Jones. I'm like, you know, hands down like a lot of stuff and she threw some kind of fake at me where i really flinched bad and head kicked me and put me down so like this is really outside of the yoni fight where he like hit me with a shot and i had a flash and my knee touched the ground for like half a second this is the only time i've ever been dropped from a headshot 
and it was Tara La Rosa. So, I mean, like I was, it hurt my ego a lot. Uh-huh. A girl just flash, flash, put me on the ground. Like I knew what hit me. I wasn't like sleeping or anything, but I was like flash and I was sitting on the ground and I was like, oh man, it just made me realize basically like, okay, if she can hurt me, anyone can hurt me. Like I have to have more respect for these shots. And I didn't like come up with like a way to fight more defensively responsible, but that was like a natural, I I just started to instinctually respect every shot because I'm like, okay, any shot now, even though it was a head kick and she never, she never threw lightly. Uh Uh, It was like, as soon as I, as soon as I like, as soon as I stood up, I was like, Oh my God, I can, I can never train to this gym again. It's <laughs> like, so, like, my ego was so hurt. And I was like, she was like, Oh my God. And I'm like, we have to keep sparring. Like, I can't let it stop here after like, so we, <laughs> I sparred her a little more, which I shouldn't have. No, but, uh, my ego was hurt, but I, I got over it. And, uh, I think I just started to develop a more, much more defensively responsible style. Mm-hmm. And it, it, I think, the, like, uh, I think I will, that had, that actually had a huge influence on how I ended up developing. Um, you know, I think there was a lot of good things that came out of that, but I think I'm also overly cautious. Sometimes I developed like a, that's when I, I think I like really shifted towards being a counter striker much yeah. more heavily. And it wasn't like a conscious thing. I'm not like, okay, I'm just going to be a counter striker and make sure I'm as safe as possible. It's just kind of, I just started fighting with more respect for shots and it developed off of that. Mm-hmm. And then I don't know, that was a huge, uh, I think a huge part of why my style is the way it, it is now. It's interesting. You know? That is interesting. Yeah. Well, it sounds like most of your development. Can't believe, was- I can't believe I shared this. Uh, no, I'm glad. I'm glad you did. It's very insightful, but it, <laughs> it just shows like how much of this stuff is kind of random like yeah. luck based or organic you know that that was such a big influence for you but that was a really like zig when you should have zagged that doesn't happen you know to be honest if i, I would have stayed if i would have stayed as aggressive as <laughs> i was being early as and i was a little earlier in my career my i, I wouldn't i don't think i would have been i don't think it would have served me as well yeah now i might have gone too far in that direction or a little too much respect for shots like but I don't know. Mm-hmm. Would you say that, uh, you know, most of those moments that shaped your development were more in, in practice and in training than they were in, in fights? Yeah. Yeah. Um, just because it's so much more time. There's, yeah. there's so much more, uh, there's so much more, um, moments to learn from. Mm-hmm. Um, even though, you know, the ones on the stage are the ones that count, right? Like you learn the, the, the things I learned from like losing in a fight was like how to mentally handle a loss. Cause my first loss in MMA, uh, I did not handle it well. Mm-hmm. I'd, I wasn't like the relationship I was in that time was like affected from it. I was like, I don't know. I, I wasn't adequately prepared to mentally handle a loss like and I, to be honest i blame a lot of this on american wrestling <laughs> yeah and just the way uh you know 
And so it's like, it's like you hear the Brands Brothers winning his life, losing his death. And like, like <laughs> this is like, you never lose. Like, it's just like a, like losing is shameful. And this kind of thing that uh, happens to people. I don't know. That, that was where I had that, like, and that was my first loss in MMA. So I was like, I was not equipped to mentally handle a loss where I don't get to like in wrestling, you get to re at least reset the next season. Like you're back to O and O for the season, you know, in MMA, like your, your record is permanent. So, uh, the things I learned from the fight were much more like, like how to be a good competitor, how to appropriately value your performance and what to take from it and what not to take from it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, it took time. I mean, I wish I could have handled it better back then, but you know, live yeah. and learn. Yeah. I mean, my last question for this section before we move on to the final section was going to be like, what advice would you give your past self and why, but it kind of sounds like everything that happened to you needed to happen to get to the best version. Like it was all just those learning experiences, but let's say you had like, you know, right when you started training at, at the fight factory, you had like 10 minutes to talk to your past self and give some, some key advice. Is there anything you would change? Um, I would tell myself some of the like mental things, like, you know, not to worry so much over the result. Like there's more important things than, you know, numbers next to your name and your record. Like mm -hmm. the, the development of skills is what you're here for. And, um, that's the most important thing. Um, I would have also tried to, like we talked about before, try to probably convince myself just to be more thoughtful in how I'm approaching training. You know, mm -hmm. if I could have done it earlier, it would have been better, but you know, you're not in a position to do any of that. You don't know if I knew it, I would have done it. I just didn't know at the right moment, you know, mm -hmm. that's how everything is. Yeah. So I mean, I guess you, you fi eventually you figure out all the things that really were best for you, but you just wish you had them sooner. <laughs> Sometimes you gotta learn the hard way. Yeah, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, so often in MMA, like you have people like, do for one example, like having terrible weight cuts their entire career, and then it's like, okay, now that I'm now that this my body is shutting down on me, I gotta diet correctly and do it, do it right, and they're doing it right in you know, their later thirties uh, for the first time, or like the the number one adaptation in MMA is older fighters becoming counter punchers and becoming more defensively responsible because like, Oh, I'm older now and uh, I can't take as many shots. I need to uh, do this, but there's all things like 90% of the time, the fighters that end up doing those things, like they become the best versions of themselves when they do that and then become more thoughtful. It's just like, if you did that sooner, you would have been better, but it having failure was what led them to make those changes in the first place. It's hard to convince people to do that. Yeah. So that's like the, those like those like <laughs> those like regretful moments of like if if back then I knew this it's like yeah it's just uh I mean I don't like to think about it like that because it's like it's like saying if I was a different person back then I would have done something different I yeah, would have been different of course, yeah. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah that's funny yeah it's uh it's interesting but I like you said watching MMA learning from other people and you know you can kind of take someone else's mistake and, and make it your lesson. Um, I feel like that could be one way to circumvent the the natural journey uh, that everyone has to certainly, go through. Certainly. You know, I'm I mean? trying the guys, the guys I'm teaching, I'm trying to impart as much of this experience as I can on them so they can get better quicker. Mm -hmm. 
So it's one of my questions, but we'll get back to it. So final, final things. Um, we, we had a whole podcast where we talked about strength and conditioning, um, but it's going to do it again. Uh, <laughs> so your physical longevity, uh, especially for this weight class for, for 125 and 135, so that's a weight class that's like really speed dependent, really cardio dependent. And like when people fall off a little bit physically, it's a big difference because you have to keep up with like some of the, uh, this athletic style that doesn't age super well. There's someone whose athletic style has aged really well. Like in your last fight, you're hitting lat drops off of like singles and like you look like a really physical athletic fighter still. Uh, And I think, you know, my theory is it's genetics because you also look pretty young uh, in the face. Uh, You don't look your age, I don't think. Um, Great, by the way, Zach. But (laughs) that's my personal theory. But, you know, do you think there's anything that you do differently than other people that you can attribute your your physical longevity to? I mean, I think it's a combination of things. I think, obviously, genetics will play a part. Um, I was... um, a strength conditioning coach. And I was always into like working out even when it wasn't about wrestling or fighting. Like I got into lifting a lot when I was uh, in high school. Um, I think just like keeping your body healthy and well-balanced and strong in different areas is important. And then I, I think as far as fighting goes, the main thing is like, like I've never not been training mm-hmm. like my my work is consistent, like all the time. Like I don't take months off to take a vacation or whatever. Like I don't, I don't get like real heavy between fights. Never do any of that. Not mm-hmm. like I don't have to like cut down to be. I don't have to like diet down to be in range to cut weight. Like I'm in range to cut weight all the time. Like a pound or two, or maybe like clean up my diet a little bit. Mm-hmm. I probably lose like a pound or two before I will do a water cut. So like. I think it's just about staying consistent and like this, like, I mean, I, I took a lot away, a lot away from how George approached it. And George was like the guy who I learned a lot of this stuff from, especially when I got to be around him and see it in person. But even like before that, when he, like his interviews and stuff, you know, like I'm not a fighter, I'm a martial artist. This isn't about my one fight. This is my life this is a lifestyle that I live. And I, mm-hmm. because I love to do it and I love to learn and develop. So it's like, even even the other jobs I got before I was fighting helped lead me to be this person. Like I, I, I think when I was studying in school with a biology degree, I, sw- I did biology because I didn't know what I wanted to be. And I knew it was like kind of a very general field that I could take in a variety of ways. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like more options than just like, I don't know, some other random degree. But um, but because I got to, uh, I, re- I realized how much I, I really fell in love with wrestling in college, not biology, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but I knew I could also use biology to funnel myself in a direction that would help me be the best competitor and athlete I could be. So like even my other jobs were helping me along the way as a strength and conditioning coach, and I was working in gym. So it wasn't like I'm going to miss a workout, like lunch break. I can get my workout in, you know, I'm already at the gym before I go to the second job. So I can work out at any time. Um, and then I, uh, so it wasn't because I was like, I'm going to be a pro MMA fighter. So I'm going to work in a gym to be an MMA fighter. I was just interested in competing and 
I, I got became very interested in athletics. So um, I kind of put together that like strength coach and still trying to compete as an athlete together. And it, and it helped me a lot. So, you know, I didn't have to like go to an office for eight hours a day and then go make it to the gym. I was in gyms mm-hmm. all day. I think that, I think that helped a lot too. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's just about really being consistent and making it not like, okay, now it's time to get in shape for my fight. It's like, I'm, I'm working all the time. Mm-hmm. What kind of things, you know, you don't have to go on for, for a long time, but what kind of things do you think, uh, contribute to like when, when a fighter like falls off hard, like maybe before you'd expect their athletic prime to end. Like I, my, my thoughts are like weight cutting can be a big, a big reason for it. It's like a lot of bad weight cuts. Um, maybe, you know, like you said, like not like having an off season, you know, not training as much or not dieting as much and then trying to get back into things. I feel like that's when injuries can occur a lot of the time or just, you know, hard sparring, like things that we already know can be damaging and detrimental. Do you think, do you, do you see that happening? And do you think that's responsible for it most of the time? Or is, are there other factors at play that we don't see as much? I think those are the main ones. I mean, um, yeah, like you shouldn't have to lose weight to cut weight yeah. <laughs> for your fight. Uh, and I mean, I, I would probably put more of an emphasis on like, too much hard, dumb training. Maybe mm-hmm. not always dumb, but too much of it. You know, like people just like to going live is 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 the most fun part of practice. You know, yeah. People don't like tedious drilling over and over, um, and it's just it's just not as appealing to them. So they they do it less, or they come train less if it's like that, and they do more hard training because that is more fun to be fair but uh but i have the most fun when i'm like learning so like like i i am a extremely tedious driller now like i'll work on one thing for months mm-hmm. and then and then try to create that scenario in live as much as possible and even though i'm doing the same thing for months i it's like I, I, if i can see my progress that's the most fun yeah you know, um, yeah. So just like too much dumb, hard training, too much ego in your training, not enough. Um, I think a lot of times fighters try to like take care of their bodies too late. It's like they don't do anything like proactive to like, uh, keep their mobility or their, or deal with in like little injuries come up, but they don't. Uh, I mean, I, I'm guilty of this too, but, but not as much as most people, I think. And I think it's because I was a strength and conditioning coach and always working on a lot of this stuff anyway. Not that I couldn't have done it more. I should definitely should, especially from my hip, I should have done it more earlier, but, um, yeah, it's just like stuff like that, I think. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, I think people's like, as far as like people who fall off, like with their chin, I mean, I don't know, this is all, I'm just guessing here, but like, yeah. I think their ego just like won't let them handle that. They need to take time off. Like they might not be able to take a punch anymore. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, I got knocked out, but you know, it's a fluke. And I'll just like, I'm back into sparring immediately. And that happens a surprising amount too. People get knocked out and they're back in sparring next week. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> Stop right. it. 
Yeah, that that seems not ideal. See, you see, they probably <laughs> didn't get dropped by a girl early in their life. So <laughs> they didn't get. I got the respect handled handed to me like that. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. I, mean, I feel like that could happen to other people, and they wouldn't take the same lesson from it that you did. But we'll get there. We'll get there. Like so I just. They have to. You have to, or you have to be in denial. It's one yeah. or the other. Well, a lot of fighters are definitely in denial. So. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Can't can't doubt that. Can't discount that. But yeah, I mean, so much of this does feel like common sense. Um, but people who can say, "Well, it's so easy," aren't the same people who have the kind of brain that would let them become a professional fighter in the first place. So it's like you have to understand, like like how people end up in these situations, and you know who's guiding them, and are they hearing the stuff and uh also i mean just from like a i don't know if you want to call it like cognitive psychology what what have you but like uh you know brain development like before your prefrontal cortex is fully developed like you have the, like the i'm invincible i'm special uh thought like i don't need to do the right things uh, i'm different um there's like a hundred different factors that can leave people in that state where they don't kind of start to to assess risk and and protect themselves uh, and do that. So they might know they might've heard all of this, but it doesn't mean they're necessarily going to do it. Um, so yeah, it's like, different. Built different. you are built different. I think so. But it also comes with the, you got the brains to go with it. Because yeah, so. The other thing is, the other thing is like, they, like people, this is one of the main insights I took from becoming friends with you guys is like, people always criticize the analysts because they're not the ones in there right. and they're, they're saying what, what happened, what should have happened, whatever, you know, this guy making the same kind of mistake over and over. And, you know, it, people criticize you guys cause you, you're not the one in there doing it, but it's a super valuable perspective. It's helped me a lot to be honest. It's because I try to explain this, I think on, a, on other podcasts, maybe, but it's like, you guys see, you guys have a different perspective than the fighters who are in there. The fighters who are in there are in this like narrowly focused daily grind. And we, a lot of times lose track of the big picture and how all these things fit together. That's why things that do seem like common sense, maybe escape them because they're just, they're in there every day working on these like finer details of things. They're, the focus narrows and they lose track of the big picture. And you guys have a big picture, but you don't have the other view either, yeah. <laughs> which is fine. You're not obviously you can't have the other view. So we have you for. <laughs> yeah, but to like dismiss it because you don't have the narrow view is they they're a lot of them are missing your perspective, and I think they obviously can both uh, learn a lot from each other. So I think it's like mm-hmm. a valuable perspective to have, not one to be criticized. Although you guys can be mean sometimes, not you. I don't want to piss off fighters. That's like the wrong person to, to have mad at you. Uh, except about other subjects. I can, we can be mad about that. <laughs> but yeah, this is a really uh, natural transition um, from everything we talked about. And you talked about it a little bit already, like how you impart some of these lessons on the people you're coaching now. And I know that, you know, it's relatively early in the game for you as a coach um but you know it, what what kind of things do you do to ant- to foster that kind of thinking like analytical thinking big picture thinking uh is it just you know making sure they get the advice uh or, or is there anything special going on or is it just you know f- literally telling them like make sure you do these things it's smart to do this <laughs> i mean i mean it's a lot of it is basic stuff i am um 
trying to, when I'm teaching specific things, I'm like, okay, uh, I make sure they know the things that I show are things that I has worked for me, but I'm different than a lot of you. So this might not be the best route for everyone. I try, so I always try to teach like a principle and concept along with how I apply it. Mm-hmm. And I try to explain that when I'm showing it. I don't just like show the move and hope they get the concept or whatever. I'm like, here's like the main principle of the, of what's making this work. Here's how I'm going to apply it. This is what has worked for me. This is what I like. If you can maintain the principle, apply it in any way you want. Like it should also work. You can be as creative as you want applying it. Um, so I, I try to, um, I try to make sure they know like the things that I'm showing aren't going to be the best techniques for all of them to use in that circumstance. But obviously I'm not going to show things most of the time that I'm not good or comfortable with, or don't have a good understanding of because I don't do them that often. The other main thing I do, and this is probably at least somewhat attributed to being friends with you guys is that, um, and these guys are, this is early in their career. I have mm-hmm. guys who have a, a bunch of amateur fights, maybe two people that have pro fights and the rest are just aspiring fighters who haven't had fights yet. So, but I, I give them in the beginning of class, they stretch out and warm up on their own. And then I give them a couple rounds in the beginning to drill anything they want to drill. And you know, I try to explain to them, like, I don't want, I don't want you guys to just show up and be like, oh, what am I working today? I don't know. I want you to put some thought into it and have some responsibility and direction over your own training. Like, okay, what kind of fighter do I want to be? What kind of skills do I need to be that fighter? What kind of drills can I work on to develop those skills? Let me do that at the time. Because you don't know what I'm going to teach. Like I said earlier, if you just show up to class, you can take whatever techniques your, your teachers show, and then your style is just like an amalgamation of what you have seen specifically from your coaches and what works through trial and error in live training. Mm-hmm. Instead of having like some responsibility and direction over your own development, which I want them to learn way earlier than I did. So I tried to, I give them in the beginning of class, they get at least two rounds to work on um, technique that they want to work on. For for us does this too. Like uh, we warm up with technique. Now he doesn't, he didn't put it that way. Like I want you guys to kind of have a, have direction over your own training. But I think that's part of the implication. He just didn't explain it like that. But, but I think that's an important thing so that they can figure out how, how these things are going to fit into their game and their style or whatever. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of them just have to develop skills in every area, Yeah, but not the same skills that I have in every area. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm trying to impart that on to them. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I hope that there is more of that going around. And I'm pretty optimistic because I don't think you're the only one um, who thinks like this and, and gets it. And I mean, uh, you know, just from my interview experience, Mark Munoz uh, is super insightful and seems like a really awesome coach. And he's, he thinks a lot in like systems and series like you would in wrestling, like you talked about. You figured out that that skip up to the single setup just based on here's how people react when I do this. And that's how you build a series, right? It's you know based on reactions and you build a chain. Um, but he, yeah, he, he teaches like his ground and pound system. He had everything he teaches is a system and I know he gets it. Um, and yeah, I think just the fact that MMA is young 
And there's so many fighters like you who are like veterans and have gone through it all and learned all these lessons. Now you guys get to impart that on, on the new generations uh, coming up. I think there are a lot of coaches out there that I hear say things that are uh, that don't that don't get it. Um, and they, they get to work with some pretty high level fighters and they have a lot of influence. And I think that's negative for the sport. Um, but I think, you know, there's just too many fighters that have learned these lessons to, for it not to develop in a good way. Um, so I think MMA is going to be okay. <laughs> I think it's going to be okay, but we need to, uh, have more conversations like these. I'm going to try to have more with other people. Definitely going to take recommendations from you um, on who else you think would be good to talk to. Uh, we just, uh, got connected with Nate Quarry. I don't know if he coaches, but I think he's definitely someone who who learned a lot from his career and someone be good to talk to you. But yeah, just like um, I want to help, you know. I want I want it to be good. I want everyone to be safe and uh, and happy and uh, optimized. And I want to do it too. So you know, it's good to <laughs> plan ahead that way. But this was really awesome, Zach. I really liked getting that big uh, picture, like uh, timeline of your career and how everything went down and. Uh, we've talked about all these things basically in bits and pieces and various conversations that we have. It's nice to have it uh, in one place, one continuous uh, stream of consciousness. And uh, hopefully this was different than other interviews you've had as well. And it's not something that people could easily find uh, from another source. That's also my goal here. Yeah, for sure. Cool. The closest thing would be other conversations with nice. people from my site. So. <laughs> Good. Good. Do you have any uh, parting words uh, on any of these topics or anything else that you want people to know? Um, I don't know. I mean, as far as the other things I'm trying to instill in my guys, like if they're training to be an MMA fighter, even when you're in kickboxing class and jiu-jitsu class or whatever, try to think about it in, in an MMA context. I mean, if that's your goal, think about how these apply in an MMA context. And then, you know, like, I, so I have like, I have some young people. I have a 16 year old who just wants to win practice every day. He's really upset if he, if he loses. Like, mm -hmm. I'm like, this practice isn't to be one. It's to learn and develop and, uh, you know, put yourself in positions where you want to work on something. Like we did like three days of dealing with people trying to guillotine you from the feet when you're taking them down as you're going to the ground and then different positions you could end up in on the ground. And I'm trying to get these guys to like, listen, go out there and just, because uh, we'll, we'll like, the way the one class is set up, like I teach a MMA technique for an hour and there's jujitsu technique in the other room for an hour. And then we all roll together at the end. Mm. Um, so, uh, I'm like, go just like, go walk at someone with your head out and let them grab your head and like <laughs> put, put yourself in these positions to work on them live because you just drill them for a little bit in class. Like, it's not going to be like, I got it. You know, you need to do these over and over. And if anything I just taught is going to be reinforced, you're going to have to apply it and, realize it in the moment so i'm trying to get these guys to like just be like you know let them take your head for whatever for for this for dealing with the guillotine like over and over and yet you're not good at these yet you're gonna get tapped a lot like but don't worry you're not trying to win practice you're trying to get better at defending the guillotine you know but a lot of them don't want to do that so i had mm -hmm. to force them to do guillotine situations <laughs> nice nice that's a pretty important one. It's like the key transition, right? <laughs> so, so many people, so many people are like, oh, you know, like uh, I want to grapple with these. I want, I want to take people down, but I'm just like, I'm scared to leave my neck out. People are going to guillotine me. I'm like, no, guillotines are free takedowns. Yeah. <laughs> but then someone else in the in the in your group is going to get really good at uh, denying the defense and and still pulling off guillotines on everybody. 
good. Good. It's going to be it's gonna an help arms race. everyone. <laughs> yeah, help but that's the, in training. That's what you want. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. G- George, George teaches a, a MMA grappling class at TriStar. And he would always be like, everyone's, you know, thanks him. Like George, like you taking your time to like, come teach the like, l- like young pros and the other pros like are amazing. And he's always like, he's like, I'm not doing this for you guys. I'm, this is a selfish thing. I'm here to make you better. So then you in turn make me better. Mm-hmm. And he always puts that uh, spin on it. George, George is the man. He's cool. He should, uh, he should do an interview with the flight side. I think but he might be a big fish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> cool. I could try. I haven't seen him for a while, but no, we'll, we'll have you both on. So he'll be more comfortable. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure that would make him more comfortable. And we'll drink. <laughs> That'll help him. All right, cool. This was, uh, this is my favorite interview. This is really good. I'm still ironing out the format and the questions, but it's tough because you responding well to them doesn't necessarily mean the other fighters are going to find them good questions to bring out their, their insights, but we'll get there. Uh, and I'd also like to thank Toasty for being such a good girl during all of this. And uh, she only bothered Thanks, me a little bit. Now she's asleep. She didn't even respond to that. Um, so yeah, awesome. Uh, everyone go check out Finishers MMA in Bethlehem and uh, follow Zach on Twitter at Zach Funsize. Is that your handle on Instagram too? No, it's at Zach underscore Makovsky on Instagram. I keep it consistent. No, that's all right. <laughs> Just look actually, up Zach Makovsky on both and you'll find him. Uh, but he, he shares a lot of good stuff. And uh, you should talk to him about MMA because he's really smart. All right. Well, that's it. Uh, yeah, I'm doing more interviews. So stay tuned for more interviews. And I'll do other stuff with Zach soon as well. And that's it. The end. Goodbye.